just a, an opportunity if you want to know a little bit more about the church. It's kind of the nuts and bolts of the church, really, is what it is. Um, how we're structured, why we're structured that way, um, who, uh, with whom are we affiliated, what is our mission, uh, what is our purpose and objective for being here, um, what is a church, why is there even a church, why did why is there a church on Randall Place? Why does this place exist? And so we want to talk about some of those those questions. And um, it's one of those things, if you're just kind of interested in what this church is about, it would be good information for you. We'll, uh, nothing is off limit. We'll talk about what we teach, why we teach what we teach, those types of things, what we be- I should say what we teach, and including what we believe um, and some of the things that, that uh, make this church distinct. Um, so we think that's a, a good class to kind of get to know who we are. If church membership is something that, that you're interested in, it is a requirement to be a member of this church. And um, we, as I've said many times, that we do believe that church membership is entirely biblical. Um, and in fact, numerous commands, clear commands in the Bible make zero sense without some form of church membership. So um, we would, uh, if you're interested in that, we would uh, love to, uh, to have you participate. It'll be after church. It is a fairly lengthy um, time, so we will serve lunch. So you need to let either myself know or Simone know so that we can make sure that we have plenty of food for everyone and it's just kind of a working lunch is what it is. Very informal and uh, I think very informative as well. So with that, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be today. And let me just kind of remind you of where we have been, or at least how we got to this place in the expansion of the church in the first century. Because Acts pretty much begins with um, the ascension of Christ, and then the, uh, uh, the church expanding and growing and going. You know, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And we're at that last part. The church is going into the uttermost parts of the world. The witnesses are going into the uttermost parts of the world. That's kind of the place we're at in the book of Acts. So this is how we got there. Or we got to where we're at. The Apostle Paul, and if you're not familiar with him, you might want to read the book of Acts a little bit and, and or listen to some of the, the messages we've talked about. But one of the key figures in the book of Acts is a guy by the name of Paul. He's an apostle. And um, he and a friend of his, Barnabas, had already done one missionary journey. And they had gone through... Um, the region of Galatia and the island of Cyprus, and they'd shared the gospel. They had uh, planted churches there, um, and people had been uh, won over to the Lord. Now, Paul and Barnabas, it's probably been, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, and Paul says, hey, we should go back and visit those churches. We should go and see how they're doing. And so he brings this suggestion up to Barnabas and says, let's go visit some of the uh, the previous churches. And let me just say, Paul's one of those guys, he's not kind of a, 
I don't know, he's not this evangelist who rolls into town, preaches the gospel, gets everybody hyped up and leaves. He's a guy who comes in, shares the gospel, people um, come to know Christ or not, um, and then he comes back and he visits or he checks up on them regularly. Paul has a very pastoral heart. So, in fact, in all of his missionary journeys, we're going to see him going through the, the region of Galatia um, and revisiting many of the churches. And those churches that he doesn't revisit, many of them he writes letters to. So Paul is one of these guys has a great concern that the people who come to know Christ are not just left out there, but rather they're, they're nurtured. He makes sure there's a leadership team. He makes sure that the churches are healthy. Um, so now he wants to go back and visit some of these churches. He wants to go back to the churches that they've pro- proclaimed the gospel um, and check also, he's, he's, he's established leaders. We, we learned that he, he put elders in the churches. Um, and so now he's going to, he, his idea is let's go back and visit them and see how they're doing. Well, that's a great idea. And Barnabas is like, yeah, let's do it. And let's bring along my, my cousin, John Mark. Well, Paul's not real happy with that idea um, because John Mark had been with them on their first trip and John Mark abandoned them. And Paul is like going, oh no, I'm not making that mistake again. No, John Mark is not going with us. He may be a great guy and everything, but we're putting our lives on the line. We are risking our lives. When we go back, remember, they're going to go back to Durba and Lystra and some of these other places. And um, in Lystra, do you remember what happened in Lystra? got stoned and thrown on the garbage heap and left for dead. Basically, that's what happened. Paul's like, listen, I need to know somebody's got my back. And John Mark, I don't know that we can trust him. So no John Mark. Well, Barnabas and Paul get into such a heated dispute over bringing John Mark along with them. This sharp division ends up splitting these two people, brothers in Christ, um, dispute over not what needs to be done, but how the ministry needs to get done. And so it's such a sharp division that the two men split. And Barnabas gets John Mark and they go south down towards the island of Cyprus. Um, Paul picks up a friend who we are introduced to a few chapters back by the name of Silas. And Paul and Silas now head off on their trip. So And this, we would say, then, is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So this is the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. So that's kind of where, some super brief background of where we've been. Let me kind of explain where we hope to go. Our text today divides itself very nicely. There is the revisit. That is a revisit, a new, the old churches. They're visiting old friends before they resume their mission um, and resume the task they've been called to. So we're going to talk a little bit about that visit to the church at Lystra. Um, that's highlighted for us. And then we're going to see them leave Lystra and go off into um, areas they've never been before. And what's kind of interesting as they, as, they, uh, as they travel on this journey, that this is really just a travel account. There is no uh, mention of them stopping at any towns and preaching the gospel. We have no sermons in this uh, travel account, all we have is their travel itinerary. And so, um, but that's our, that's our outline. We're going to talk a little bit about what happens when they revisit some of these churches and then what happens as they travel and get ready um, for this new phase of ministry. So that's where we're at. You with me so far? Not too difficult? 
I don't think it is. Um, so let's read our text today. Follow along in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, as I uh, look at our text. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And this ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, the, the, the missionary team leaves and they arrive at this town of Derby and Lystra. And um, you need to, re- as, I re- as I mentioned previously, that at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas were mistreated. It was actually the place where they healed a lame man. Do you remember? They healed a lame man and then they were mistaken for being gods. The people wanted to worship them and offer sacrifices to them. They said, listen, we're not gods. We're men just like you. And then um, a dissenting voice came and uh, turned everybody against them. First, they're wanting to worship them as gods, and then they're beating them up and throwing stones at them and leaving them for dead. Um, People are fickle, I guess. Um, So, but it says that they appointed elders in the church, and now they've come back. And so... We saw in Derby they had preached the gospel and made many disciples there. But in this text, in the first few verses, we are introduced to a new person. We are introduced to a new person who's going to be a very significant individual in the Bible. His name is Timothy. All right. Timothy is becomes most likely becomes Paul's most trusted companion. Timothy is a major player in scripture. I mean, when we think about the Bible, we think, you know, kind of, you got Peter and you got Paul and you got John and you got a couple other, like, really primary figures. And Timothy is uh, one of these people who, I don't know that Paul would have been able to do his ministry without a guy like Timothy. Paul considered him a son, which is interesting. Um, Paul actually addressed two letters you've got in your Bible, First and Second Timothy. Paul wrote two letters to this guy, Timothy, and also listed him as a co-sender in six of his letters. Paul wrote, I think it was 13 letters, and two of those are to Timothy, and six of those, he says, I, Paul, and Timothy. So Timothy's a big player in the ministry of Paul, and we're being introduced to him for the first time today. Paul considered Timothy his fellow worker. Paul considered him a a son with his father in the work of the gospel. And so uh, 
Paul draws very, very close to this guy by the name of Timothy, and we are grateful for Timothy. We actually know quite, quite a bit about Timothy. I've just listed that. We even know a little bit about his family. Um, we know about his mother and his grandmother. Um, we learn this in 2 Timothy 1.5, that his mother's name was Eunice, and his grandmother's name was Lois, and that they were believers. They were Christians. More likely than not, Paul um, and Barnabas went to Lystra, proclaimed the gospel. More likely than not, Lois and Eunice become a Christian under or become Christians under after hearing the gospel presented by Paul and Barnabas. And then there's debate, um, and we just don't know. Did, did Timothy become a, a believer when he heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas, or did his mother and grandmother share the gospel with him? But we know that he had a very good relationship with his, his grandmother and his mother. They were believers. Um, his mother was Jewish, and his father was Greek. So Timothy has a Jewish mom and a Greek father. And you're going, why do we need to know all of that? Well, it's really important. It's really important to to help us understand what's about to happen by knowing Timothy's mom and dad and their nationalities, that one's Jewish, the mom's Jewish, and the father's Greek is going to be critical as we approach this next section. Because in this next section, what we see is that, well, first of all, we also know that Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers in, uh, in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wants Timothy to come along with him on this missionary journey. Um, think about that. If you're, if you're Eunice, your son is Timothy, and Paul comes along and says, you know, Eunice, I think we want to take your son Timothy on this missionary journey. And Eunice is like, yeah, I know, the, I know what happens to missionaries because we live in Lystra and we beat you up a few months ago, about a year and a half ago, and left you for dead. And now you're saying you want my son to go with you? Well, Paul wants Timothy to go with him. And it says then that he took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. And now we need to stop here and just talk for a moment and, and, and ask, is Paul being inconsistent? Because this has been the charge. People read this and say, Paul is now relying on the works of the law for justification. Paul is now relying on the works of the law for a person to be made right before God. See, he's now falling back into following the laws of Moses. Paul, the great champion, that salvation is by grace alone, not by adherence to the law of Moses. But now he's advocating for submission to the law of Moses. This makes no sense. Why would Paul be so intent on following the laws of Moses when he is such an advocate against those very laws? I will put forth Uh, the right position now. Paul is not being inconsistent at all. In fact, Paul is being very consistent with the Christian belief. Paul is being very uh, consistent with Christianity. Because you'll remember that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. And this was upheld at the Jerusalem Council. This was the big debate. Because people had come into into Antioch... um, we call them Judaizers, 
and they came in and they said, you need to follow the laws of Moses to be saved. And this prompted a big council. And the council was at Jerusalem. And at this council, it was affirmed and confirmed what we have always believed is that a person is saved by grace through faith. That's how a person is saved. That is, that one, that Christ paid the penalty for our sins and that by believing in that, we are saved. That his work, the work of Christ on Calvary is sufficient to pay for our sins. That no works that we do will ever be sufficient to cover our sins. This is what Paul advocated and what Paul championed. And Paul, by the way, is not wavering from this. The, Gentile, the, the Jews would say, um, you need to first become a Jew and then you can become a Christian. And Paul rejected that. The Bible rejects that. The entire New Testament rejects that. But the converse is true as well. And the converse is that while um, Jews do not need to give up their cultural identity to be Christian. In fact, I think Paul was very, I don't know if I want to say proud, but um, he was not ashamed of his Jewish heritage. He was not ashamed that he was a, a, um, a Jewish man, although he was a Roman citizen. He was a Jewish man. He loved the Jewish faith. He loved the law. The law is good. He loved those things. And he's saying, listen, just because you're, you're a Christian doesn't mean that you need to give up your Jewish heritage. And so you need to understand that Timothy would have been considered a Jew. His mother was Jewish and his father was a Greek. And while Jewish law really didn't permit mixed marriages like that, they happened. And when they happened, the children born of a mixed marriage were, were to be raised Jewish. Timothy's father was Greek. His mother was Jewish. He was considered Jewish, but apostate, actually. That is, he needed to fulfill all of the law of Moses and to be adopted into the Jewish um, life. And that had not happened. So really, what's going on here? Timothy's going to go along with, with Paul on this missionary journey. We have to ask him, then what's going on here? Why, why this act? Why this work of the law um, to bring Timothy along? And, and especially when it's not necessary for salvation. Well, here's the issue. It isn't necessary for salvation. In fact, Timothy's already a Christian. He's well spoken of by the brothers. So this has nothing to do with Timothy becoming a Christian. This has everything to do with making certain that the gospel is central to the mission. It has everything to do with making certain that the gospel is central to the mission. See, Luke's condition would have been a stumbling block to the Jews that they were going to encounter. Because what was Paul's method? Paul's method was always, we go to the synagogue first, and we preach the gospel there, and then that's where we start. This... Luke would have been a stumbling block by being uncircumcised would have been a stumbling block to the Jews that they would have encountered and would have turned into this great discussion and debate and would detract from the central theme of the gospel. In other words, they'd spend two hours talking about Luke's physical condition and not talking about the gospel. Paul's saying nothing should, become, should hinder um, our being able to present the gospel. Paul understands that the circum that 
Circumcision is indifferent. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. What's important is a new heart. Listen, it doesn't matter one way or the other. Paul understands that. He understands that, that grace alone is what saves us, but he also understands that it can be a tool that can be used to share the gospel. One other thing we should note. Note Timothy's commitment to keep the gospel central. Timothy's on the, on the receiving end of the knife. If this is what it takes to make certain that the gospel is central and not distracted from, here we go. Man, these guys are committed to the gospel. Make sure that there are no stumbling blocks. And I guess... Um, let me just encourage us as believers to make certain that we not get sidetracked from issues that have no relevance to salvation. I'm not saying we can't talk about other things, but when we're sharing the gospel, I don't know, how many times might we get sidetracked on other important issues, but they're not salvific? How many times have I been sharing the gospel and you get distracted to some other important but secondary issue. Somebody ends up engaging us in the issue of social justice or on the topic of evolution or maybe the, 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 um, uh, the treatment of immigrants. Those are important, very important topics. We should spend time talking about them. I'm just here to tell you they will save nobody. If we solve the immigration problem, if in your discussion... You're talking with somebody and they bring up the, the issue of what do we do about immigration and you come up with the answer that solves the whole problem. They're not saved. If you can convince the person you are having a discussion with that God has made, that there is a God and he has made people uniquely in his image and that they are not slime. And they don't come from slime and their parents aren't slime. But rather they've been created as in the image of God. Even if you get that, they're still lost in their sins. So I'm... Simply saying these are really, really important issues. And sometimes what we need to do is we need to overcome some of those barriers and those obstacles so people can hear the gospel um, and receive the gospel. I'm just saying let's not make those the major point of our gospel presentations. The gospel needs to be central. Paul and, and Timothy are like, oh, well, if there's something that's going to distract from the gospel, there's going to be plenty of things that are going to distract us from the gospel. Let's see if we can eliminate as many barriers as possible so that when we come into these synagogues, we're not talking about issues that won't save. We're only talking about Jesus Christ come to save sinners. That's what we want to talk about. I remember one of the first missionary trips that this church um, sponsored and participated in. Um, we all went to, uh, to Honduras. Well, not all of us, but some of us went to Honduras. It was a great trip, and uh, uh, God did mighty, mighty, and wondrous things there. But I remember we went to uh, one area one evening, and um, we were told that there was a, a, a sensitivity 
there um, and that women should probably remove their jewelry and makeup. That because of some of their, sen- their cultural sensitivities, this would be a hindrance to them. Not only that, but we had one young guy with us and he had just had his tongue pierced. And uh, I, don't, I don't understand that. I mean, you know, I understand how it works. I just don't understand the con- But anyways, he did. So what did we do? Do we have freedom? Did the women on that trip have their freedom to wear makeup and jewelry into that area? Absolutely. In Christ, they had every freedom to do that. Did this young kid have freedom to keep his stud in his tongue? Absolutely. Christian freedom. They, all of them could have said, we have freedom in Christ to do this, and we are going to assert our Christian freedom. And quite possibly what ends up happening is we end up debating the merits of makeup and not the gospel. And everybody on the team says, we will make sure that that's not a barrier to the gospel. That's not a barrier to our witness. We have Christian freedom, and we could assert that freedom, but we also have love for our neighbor, and we want to make sure that the gospel shows. That's what Paul's doing here. So Paul is being absolutely consistent. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone, but I will put no stumbling block before before a person that might keep them from hearing the gospel. Perfectly, perfectly consistent. So Paul is, uh, is understanding that a person... And then it says, um, it says, as they went through their cities, they delivered to them the observance, uh, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So as they were going along, they were visiting the churches and they're reading the the. The, the decision that had been made at the Jerusalem Council. The decision that had been made at the Jerusalem Council was very simple. You're saved by grace through faith. And there were a couple of cultural things that they wanted you to observe so as not to be a stumbling block to your neighbor. And so they read the council decision and they, they brought, they went to these churches and said, listen, here's the truth. You are not saved by following the laws of Moses. You are saved by Christ. And I love this. It says, so the churches were strengthened. And I love that little, that little connection. So. So the church. Why were they strengthened? Because they heard that salvation was by grace through faith. They heard that, they heard the centrality of the gospel. They heard that a person is saved on the merits of Christ alone. So they were strengthened. How do we strengthen one another? We strengthen one another through the gospel. So here, what we see is the centrality of the gospel. That To preach Christ and Him crucified. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for people who are um, still still in their sins. Let me put it that way. And the wages of sin is death and God will judge sin. And that's a frightening, frightening thing. God in His justice will judge sin. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel says that Christ bore your sin in his body on the tree. So the gospel saves. 
What does the gospel save you from? Well, it saves you from sin, but what does that matter? What it does is saves you from God's just wrath against that sin. Jesus bears that sin, bears your sin. That's the point of the gospel, is that on the cross when Jesus died, um, he just didn't die to be a good example and to show you what a, you know, oh, I love you so much, I'm going to die a horrible death. That accomplishes nothing. His death actually accomplishes something. His death actually, in his death upon the cross, your sins are laid upon him so that those who will call upon him in faith. Um, basically what happens is God takes, Jesus takes our sins and bears them himself so God's just wrath is satisfied. His just wrath against sin is satisfied. Christ bears it. And his love is demonstrated in that he forgives you because the wrath of God has now been satisfied. So the good news then is that the gospel is for sinners. It saves us from the wrath of God. But the gospel is also for believers. The gospel strengthens us and it causes growth. Look what happens. When they heard the gospel, this Jerusalem Council, that you're saved by grace through faith. The churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers. It strengthens and it causes growth. If you're here today and you've never called upon the name of the Lord, I want you to know that the gospel is for you. That Christ bore your sins and will save you from the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God. He took God's wrath. If you're a Christian here today, you're a believer and you've already confessed and and, uh, expressed faith in Christ, I want you to know the gospel is for you as well. That it strengthens us and encourages us and and it it causes growth. So, this is Paul and Silas in the town of Lystra, probably in Lystra, but also some of the other towns. And they're going about revisiting where they've been. Let's talk a little bit about some new territory that they cover. Because it says, Then they went through the region um, of Phrygia and Galatia. Um, And the direction of their travel, most likely, what they're trying to do is head um, west over to Ephesus. And I I, I think I have a map. Let's see. I do have a map. What do you know? So, anyways, here's Jerusalem, here's Antioch, that's where they started, they travel over here, here's Derby. here's Lystra and Iconium, this is where they meet Timothy, and now they're heading, they want to head west, and I'm, my best guess is they want to head over here to Ephesus. There's a major road um, that they would follow. Paul loved to go to the big towns, to the big cities first, and Ephesus is a major, major city. So, they want, I think, I think they want to go this way, but the text tells us that the Holy Spirit restricted them from going west. Well, if we can't go west and we're not going to go back east, let's go north. After all, Bithynia and Pontus, there's some big cities up here. Let's start heading north into Bithynia and Pontus. And then we learn that that's restricted by the Spirit of Jesus. 
So we want to go west, but somehow the door is closed. So we'll go north, somehow the door is closed, and that kind of leaves them one opportunity. They start heading kind of northwest and end up over in this area of Troas, over by the sea. Now, just a couple of things. One of the big questions that comes up when we read this, and it's probably all of you asked this question when I read it, um, or when you've read it, you said, in what way, how exactly did the Holy Spirit stop them or block them from going um, the direction they wanted to go? And the answer to that question is really simple. Um, I don't know. <laughs> the text is silent. So I don't know. And I could stop there, but I'm a preacher, so let me expand on this idea of I don't know. <laughs> Only a preacher can say I don't know and then start to explain further, right? I, I can say this, that God is resourceful. Um, and we have seen God do things in all sorts of various ways. Um, perhaps there was a prophetic word given, saying, don't go this way. That's possible. Perhaps there was um, some inner unction, I guess. And it just didn't feel right. I guess that's possible. It's also possible that just through providential actions and events, things, roads get blocked. Let me give you a good example. Let me give you the example of how John Calvin ended up in the city of Geneva. John Calvin wanted a nice, quiet life of being a theologian and writing. And so he was going to go live his nice, quiet, uneventful, undis undisrupted life in Strasbourg. And as he was heading up towards Strasbourg, by God's providence, there, there was a military movement and troops were being shifted from one battlefield to another battlefield, and the road to Strasbourg that very moment happened to get blocked off. And the only way to get around that was to take a little detour, which just so happened ended up in the city of Geneva. In other words, God moved military troops to block the road and move John Calvin over to Geneva. And he was only going to spend one night there before he was going to get up and travel further over to Strasbourg. And as it turns out, William Farrell, another guy was there, heard Calvin um, was in town and compelled him to stay. And the Swiss Reformation from there, um, the history of the Swiss Reformation, um, takes hold in Geneva because young John Calvin, who just wants to live his life as in a quiet life, writing theological works and not upsetting any apple carts anywhere, gets detoured by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used a military regiment to block his path. God uses all sorts of means. So I don't know how they ended up, but somehow the Holy Spirit is blocking their means. And so now they end up over here in Troas, which is right over on, on the corner, right on the sea here. Um, I don't know that it's much of a town, um, but that's where they're at. Kind of blocked off by the sea, 
They can't really go anywhere, can they? They they know they can't go back east because that's home. So what are they going to do? Well, God's going to open a way. Imagine that. So they're spending the night in Troas, not knowing what they're going to do, and Paul has a vision. And the vision is of a Macedonian man who says, come over here to help us. Now, that prompted a question. What kind of help did they want? Come over here to help us. Uh, I'm sure he's not asking, come over here and sit on the city council and help us create better laws and government. Come over here to help us. Come over here and preach the gospel. We see this in the Old Testament. To help somebody in the Bible is often a cry to save. And so come over here. Bring the message of salvation. And then I love this next line. It's easy to miss. I just finally sparked in me a couple of days ago. Where it says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding. Look at that word, concluding. We concluded. The first thing to talk about is, you notice the we? What does that tell you? It tells you that Luke's with him, doesn't it? Luke's the author of this particular book. Of this particular book. Luke has now joined the missionary team. We concluded. And the idea of we concluded is so interesting to me. Paul says, I had a vision, and so the missionary team sits down and talks about it. What does this mean? Is this really a vision from God? Is this really what God wants? Are you sure it's from God? Are you sure it wasn't just, I don't know, bad Croatian food? Are you sure it was God? Sure it's not Satan? Are you sure it's not? We're not being deceived. And so the missionary team concludes. They don't just take some vision and say, oh, well, that must be God. We concluded. We sat down and we talked about it. Let me give you just a a couple of observations um, so now we've seen the travel itinerary. We've seen um, Paul is, and, and the missionary team, Silas, and now Timothy. They, they take off. They're trying to head one direction. They can't go that direction, so they head another direction. They can't go that direction, so they take a third direction, and they end up exactly where God wanted them to be. And in that place, God makes himself known. You need to come over to the region of Macedonia and preach the gospel to us. So the first thing I want to make note of, and hopefully you will observe, is that you will see that this missionary team is directed by the, by, by, by the triune God. Did you notice that? The first time we see it, that the Spirit of God hindered us. And then they say that they are hindered by the Spirit of Jesus, and then we concluded that God called us through the vision to Macedonia. You begin to uh, understand that the the Trinity, you will see it all over the Bible. It's just assumed in the Bible. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, God is, is directing the paths of this missionary team. We should note then that the triune God leads according to his purpose. The triune God leads according to his purpose. And this is interesting because the missionary team had plans, didn't they? They had plans. They were going to go one way. And then they were going to go another way. But God redirected those plans. It's good that we have plans. It's good that we we make agendas and we have directions and we set a course. We also need to realize that God is ultimately the one who guides our steps. 
Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Paul and Silas plan their ways. We're going, we're going west. God said, no, you're not going west. Okay, we're going north. That's where we're going, by golly. We're going north. And I said, no. Okay, we're going northwest. That's our direction. And we're set on it. We hold our plans with an open hand, so it's good to have plans. It's good as a church to have plans. Think about, this is where we want to go. This is what we want to do. And yet we hold everything with an open hand. Because God may direct our steps. into, And we have to let God be God. I really wanted to go west. I wanted to go to Ephesus. Ephesus is where it's happening. Well, Paul eventually got to Ephesus. Just, and Bithynia got preached to. Peter preached to the, the, um, um, the outcasts in Bithynia. All of those places got the gospel in God's due time. God's like going, I'm taking you the path I want to take you. So we have plans. We should have I want to do this. This is the direction I want to go. This is where I want to go with my life. This is um, how I, I, I want to proceed. And then we need to allow that God will be God. And we may not um, end up where we had planned. And we should be giving praise and thanks to God. We should also note here that God directs through various means. God directs through various means. And we've seen in the, in the Scripture... Um, that God has directed through a lot of various means, through providential acts, um, through what we might call supernatural means, dreams, visions. I don't think we can read the Bible and not see those things. But here's another way that God has led them. And, and we saw this last week, and I didn't point it out, but I think it's appropriate here, that throughout the book of Acts, one of the things we see often is this phrase, we thought it prudent. Or we thought it wise. What? We thought it wise that we would do this. That's right. They actually just said, well, what do you want to do? Well, we weighed out our our options and we think the best course of action is this way. What? No dream, no vision, no direct word from God, no inner unction, no sky riding, you know, go this way or anything like that. No, what we would call a supernatural act. I would call... The, we thought it prudent or we thought it wise, a supernatural act of God. It's God leading people. Sometimes I think we, we say, well, I'm going to make this decision in my life. I'm going to go to, I'm going to take this job. Well, why? Well, I, I believe God told me so. Folks, I want you to know it's just a spiritual to say, you know what, I think it's wise. I don't think that's any less spiritual. I think it's wise. Looked at my options. It's not illegal. It's not against God's word. It looks like the best course of action. I think this is the wise, prudent way to go. And if God happens to change the course, then God changes the course. But I think it's wise. There's nothing unspiritual or ungodly We don't have to couch everything in some great... Well, I had a vision, so that's how I know to do it. We don't need visions. God's given us directions. He's given us wisdom. We can start... And notice how God's moving these people. They're already on the move. They're already walking. They're already going one place, and God is just kind of redirecting their steps. 
They're already moving. In other words, they did not need some grand vision to tell them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They already had that from the words of Jesus. So they're going into the world to preach the gospel. And as they're doing it, God's kind of directing them. And I don't know exactly how. Sometimes partly through a vision, but also through some other unmentioned ways. God is directing them because they're already moving. So if you want to know God's will for your life and what you're supposed to do, here's an idea. Start moving. Start following what God has clearly already told us in His Word. We do not need a word from God to preach the gospel to all nations. We do not need special... We already have special revelation for that. Love your neighbor. You don't need some inner unction to tell you to love your neighbor. Start doing it. God has a way of redirecting our steps. Let me give you a a final illustration and then I'll close. There's a story I tell often, but I think that it's important and I think it illustrates this well. Um, So, when I first started at this church, we had a, a lady here by the name of Joan, and some of you know Joan. Joan was an amazing, amazing woman. And, um, and her husband, Bill, and Bill was a great guy. And I got a lot of Bill stories. But Joan wanted to reach our community. And Joan could sew. So Joan said, Pastor, I have an idea on how we can minister to our community. I want to sew, um, I want to uh, fix people's clothing. So if they need buttons sewn on their shirts and if they need their pants hemmed, I want to be able to do that. And we can just, I can set up my uh, sewing machine downstairs and they can come by and also buttons on their shirts. My words were this, go for it, Joan. My mind was, this isn't going to work at all. Nobody is going to come to have their buttons sewn on their shirt or their pants hemmed. I appreciate, this is in my mind, I appreciate her desire to serve the Lord and to reach out to this community, but it's not going to work. And here's the thing, I was right. It didn't work. Failed terribly. See, what happened was Joan then came and a few other ladies and they set up their sewing machines and they were waiting for people to sew buttons on their shirts and hem their pants. And nobody was coming, so while they were waiting, they began to sew other things. Like, let's just start making some clothes. I'm sure there's some people in our community who could use a new shirt or some new pants, so they start doing that. And then weeks go by and they say, you know, not only are we... uh, sewing up the, these clothes, shirts, and pants for people that we, we have no idea are. You know, we have some, some, some ladies here in our church who are shut in and have nowhere to go. Let's go pick them up and bring them down here, and they can sew with us or just hang out, and we'll have lunch with them. That's what we'll do. So now they're sewing, and they're going, well, now we've got all these clothes. What do we do? Do you think there's some kids at the school who might need some clothes? I think there are. Well, let's go over there and deliver them. I bet it's getting cold. Maybe we can make jackets. Yeah, let's make jackets. So they start making jackets and warm sweatshirts for some of the kids, and they're delivering them. Then they call the school and say, you know what, instead of us just making random clothes, why don't you tell us what size clothes these kids need, and we'll make them. And so they do that, and then pretty soon it's like, listen, why the middleman? Just have the kids come by here, and we'll measure them, and they can pick out the fabric, and we'll make them custom-made clothes. I, I joke, I say, we had a little sweatshop downstairs.
Joan said, let's sew buttons on people's shirts. She's moving. What ends up happening is a community-wide... We're making kids custom clothes. Measuring them and fitting them and... Making sure the kids have warm clothes. Making sure they have decent clothes. Making sure they have clean shirts. Making sure they have these... um, these garments that they would have never, ever had, all because somebody just starts moving. She didn't have some dream or vision saying, I want you to start a sweatshop at the church on Randall Place. She said, I'm going to sew a button on somebody's clothes. That's how it starts. She just said, I have a gift. I know something I do, something I can do well. I can serve my community and glorify Christ in this way. And God says, it's not going to be about buttons, Joan. It's going to have nothing to do with buttons. This is how the missionaries are moving. And this is how we move in our lives. We start doing, what does God call me to do? What, what is clear? What am I gifted at? What is, what is my ability? How can I serve Christ with what I have? And you'll be, I don't know that everything turns into a, oh, and then by the way, then they start making these, these little vests for um, People in uh, wheelchairs, because they had time, it's like, well, now we, what do we do? Oh, we can make ch- these vests. And they, they became so popular, Johnny and Friends, right? You may all know the ministry, Johnny and Friends. They got a hold of one and start calling Joan, saying, we want those for our people in wheelchairs. And they'd make them. They ended up all, literally, these vests, and they put a little track in the pocket, um, were so great for people in wheelchairs, it literally ended up going worldwide. Johnny and friends had them all over the world. Simply because a person says, I can sew a button. This is how God does stuff. It, it's just start moving and God will direct your steps. I don't know that you'll end, ever end up in a worldwide type of ministry type thing. I just know that God will direct your steps and he will be honored and glorified. And that's what we learn. One of the things we learn from this missionary trip. They just start moving. Let's go west. Nope, can't go west. Let's go north. Can't go north. Let's go northwest. And they end up taking the gospel into Macedonia. We'll see that next week. They're going to end up in Philippi, and we're going to meet a wonderful, wonderful woman um, in Philippi. So that's next week. So let me conclude with this. First of all, the gospel is central. The gospel is central. It not only saves, but it strengthens. It saves the lost and strengthens the saved, or strengthens the found. And we are ever in need of the gospel. Second thing, you already have enough divine guidance to serve God faithfully. You already have enough divine guidance to serve God faithfully. He's given you his word. He's told you um, what he wants. He's already gifted you. You already have everything you need to serve God faithfully. He may direct your steps in ways you can't even imagine, but you don't need to wait until you have this unimaginable vision. Start moving now. Start serving God now. You'll be amazed what God does with, I got, all I got is a fish and a couple loaves. What do you think we can do with it? God's like going, perfect. It's exactly what I need. Set your course. There's nothing wrong with setting your course. Allow God to detour if necessary. Trust his agenda. Um, let's stand and let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for all the faithful people in this church, people who love you and